you will turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, we're going to look this morning at verses 1 through 4 as we continue in our series through Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. You can find that on page 980 in the Blue ESV Bible, 980 if you want to follow along. Our sermon this morning is entitled, More Significant, and our keywords for our worshipers and training are mind, love, and selfishness. In January of 2007, a man by the name of Wesley Autry, who's a 50-year-old construction worker and a Navy veteran, he was waiting for the subway at 137th Street and Broadway in Manhattan around 12.45 p.m. He was taking two of his daughters home before he went to work that evening. Well, nearby, uh, in the subway underground, there was a man who collapsed. His body began convulsing from a seizure. Mr. Autry and two women rushed over to help him. The man, whose name, uh, 20 years old, his name was Cameron uh, Hollow Peter. He managed to get up, but as he got up, he stumbled and he fell from the platform down onto the subway tracks. And he fell between the two rails. And as he fell between the rails, everyone looked up and could see the lights from the number one train arriving on the rail. Mr. Autry recalls, I had to make a split decision. So he leapt down onto the tracks. With his heart pounding, he laid on top of Cameron, pressing him down in the space between the two rails about a foot deep. The train's brakes screeched, but it couldn't stop in time. It passed right over them. All five subway cars went overhead before the train eventually stopped, passing inches from Autry's head, smudging his blue knit cap with grease. He heard all the onlookers scream and shout, and so he said, We're okay down here, but I have two daughters up there. Let them know that their father's okay. People gasped. Everyone started to clap. The power was cut. The subway workers came and got the men out. Cameron, a New York York film school student at the time, he was taken to a local hospital. He only had a few bumps and bruises other than uh, having the seizure. Mr. Autry refused medical help. He said, there's nothing wrong with me. And so he visited Cameron in the hospital that night before he went to work on the night shift. And a reporter caught up to him and he said, I don't feel like I did something spectacular. I just saw someone who needed help and I did what was right. And as we continue this morning in our series through Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, we're challenged to think about our disposition toward other people. We're challenged to think about our own hearts and when we see other people in need, when we, when we see what's going on in other people's lives, is our first and immediate reaction to jump into action, to consider the other person more highly, more important than ourselves, to put the other's needs before our own needs, that their needs might be met. You may hear Mr. Autry's story and think, but what about his safety? What about his children? as they stood and watched all of this take place. But Mr. Autry saw a need, and his immediate response was to not to think about himself, but to think about this stranger in need. Now, I don't know if he's a Christian. I don't know what his motivation was. But it does give us a good illustration as we think about Paul's challenge for us in our text this morning. But Paul's admonition is a bit more specific. Now, if you recall, last week as we looked at the end of chapter 1, we saw his exhortation 
was that the church be standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, knowing that they will face persecution, and in facing persecution, they can rejoice in knowing that they are suffering for the sake of Christ. And so while there is a general call for us this morning to live selflessly for others, there is a specific call here, especially for the church. That our unity as God's people, our unity as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, be maintained by putting others before ourselves. Giving all that we have for the good of others. So let's read together Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of of others. Well, there are at least three different ways in which Paul instructs the church to maintain our unity in the text this morning. The first we see in verse 1 is that we can maintain our unity by remembering the work of Christ. Again, he says there in verse 1, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... So Paul is intentionally turning the minds of the Philippians to their salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ, that they would have a sweet memory of what God had done supernaturally in their lives to bring them to where they are in Him. And Paul hoped that that this would move them to do whatever was necessary to ensure the unity of the Spirit. He writes, "...if there is any encouragement in Christ." This, this is the work of God, the Holy Spirit. And this is the experience that every true Christian has. We aren't just saved. We aren't just made new creations in Christ, as if that's not enough. But we are encouraged. We are strengthened. We are comforted by the Spirit because of our faith in Christ. There's a sense that we, we now have the greatest treasure in the world. I have far greater than anything I could hope for, anything I could imagine, anything that I could ask for. And in that, it's, it's a knowing and being encouraged by the fact that, that Christ is ours and we are His forever and ever. And that while temptations and trials will come in this life, when I may face persecution, in the end, our, our advocate... Our Savior, our Mediator, Jesus Christ, is irrevocably for us, and He will forever keep us secure. And so Paul is saying, remember that. Remember who Christ is. Remember what He has done, what He is doing, what He will do. This is encouragement that came to you in Christ. Not just to you, but all of you who are in Christ. The whole church of the Lord Jesus. Let this be the thing that unifies you and keeps you together that all of you have had individually and that you can share together. He goes on to write, If there is any comfort in love, He's reminding them of this experience of Christ's love for them. 
Can, can you remember the first time that you had a sense of Christ's unconditional love for you? A sense that even though you're broken, even though you are full of sin in your life, even though you fall far short of what God calls you to be as His people, that He loves us just as much today as He did the day He saved us and as much as He will in 10,000 years of heaven. God's love doesn't wax and wane. God loves us unconditionally. Christ died that we might know that love and and its comfort to us, its consolation to our souls. Every child of God has had experience of Christ's love. And Paul is saying, remember that love. Remember Christ's love as you live together and as you love one another. Remember what it is. Remember what He has done in order to secure that love for you. And and as we deal with this even more significantly, uh, we'll see this more in our text next week as we look specifically at what Christ did in order that He might introduce us and bring us into the family of God through His love. The third thing he points out in verse 1 is, if there is any participation in the Spirit. This is the same language Paul used back in chapter 1 and verse 5. Remember back there he was celebrating the Philippians' participation or fellowship in the gospel with him. Recall that Paul is in prison as he's writing this letter, and he was thanking the Philippians for their partnership and all that he had done for them, uh, for him, their love, their, their prayers, their fellowship, and their compassion their concern for him. In 1 Corinthians 12, 13, Paul explains what he's talking about here, this participation or this fellowship in the Spirit. It's found in the fact, Paul writes, in that we were all baptized into one body, Jews and Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one Spirit. And so the same Holy Spirit that dwells in me dwells in you and dwelt in Paul and dwelt in the Philippians. The same Spirit that convicts me of sins and illumines the Scriptures for me and gives me wisdom and direction by recalling the Word of God in my life is the same Spirit that does all of these great works for you and did them for Paul and did them for the Philippians. And so we participate we, we fellowship together with the Spirit of God, and in doing so, we fellowship with one another because the same Spirit is at work in me and you and all other Christians in the world. Paul also says there in verse 1, if there is any affection and sympathy. More specifically, he's, he's talking about divine compassion, divine mercy that proceeds from Christ Himself to His people at the moment of salvation, and now passes through his people onto others. Showing sympathy, showing affection. In other words, being merciful. It's an indication that someone has themselves received mercy. I wouldn't be surprised to find out that a man who jumps off of a subway uh, station onto the rails to save someone else that he has received mercy from God. It overflows from a heart that's been transformed by the gospel, that we see needs and we strive to meet them. It's the natural outworking of God's supernatural work in a believer's heart. And as we walk in the Spirit, we will be merciful to one another because we recall all of the great truth that Christ has been compassionate and merciful to us and therefore 
I can't help but be compassionate and merciful to others. And Paul writes all of this, remember, to encourage unity in the church by recalling what Christ has done for us in the church. And we all understand that, don't we? When we're with other believers, sometimes we, we travel, we, we may have never met them before, but there's this immediate sense of our unity. And, and it's in the simple yet profound fact that together we're in Christ. Together the same Spirit dwells in me as in you. And we find our together, uh, our, our comfort together in the love of Christ. We participate together. We fellowship in the Holy Spirit. We express our lives towards one another with affection and with sympathy. We show mercy to one another. The verse, this, this verse alone is a beautiful picture of what happens in the body of Christ, when, when we simply set our minds on the work of Christ on our behalf and our hearts on Christ and His attitude toward us. This is compelling stuff for all of us, I hope. Paul has brought the minds of the Philippians back to their memories of when Christ first saved them. And that does something for the Christian. When you're, when you're tempted to lash out at another Christian... It does something when you want to hold on to an offense instead of offer forgiveness. It does something when you're irritated by a person in the church for one reason or another and you you don't feel like responding to them in a way that you would want to be treated, but instead you want to insist on your own way. When our minds are fixed on who Christ is and what Christ has done and how Christ has shown us love and the fact that me and this person both have the same Spirit dwelling within us, when we think of the mercy, the compassion, the sympathy that's been shown to us by Christ, it does something in how we interact with one another and how we approach this issue of unity within the church. It will be maintained because we're forced to stop and to think about getting exactly what we want and whether or not we're being selfish. And when this is at play in your mind, when these ideas are lodged in your heart, as you relate to others, there will be a concerted effort on your part to maintain unity and mutual care. This is necessary if we are to live worthy. Remember he spoke last week on living worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we are to live worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we must remember what Christ has done on our behalf that we might maintain the unity of the church. Well, the second way we see this in verse 2, Paul exhorts the church to maintain unity in verse 2, saying that we must maintain unity by being gospel-first people. We introduced that phrase last week, being gospel-first people. Here it is again this morning. If you'll recall from last week, we said that Paul's exhortation was that the church be of one mind, striving side by side, for the faith of the gospel. And that was this call to continually fly the banner of the gospel over his kingdom. That we be a gospel first people. It's the motto, it's the mantra, it's the banner that flies over the kingdom of Christ that we are gospel first. Well, he continues that focus here. He says, complete my joy. 
Complete my joy. In other words, fill up my cup of joy. Let me be joyful, hearing that, that maybe even having the opportunity that I can see this work, that you are doing all of these things to maintain the unity of the church, that would fill me with so much joy. There's nothing quite like that for a pastor in this situation for the apostle, to see God's people in the church walking together in the unity of the Spirit, encouraging and serving one another. Just this weekend, I won't embarrass anyone, I'm not calling out any names, but we had one of our members who was in need of assistance, and I can't tell you how much joy there was in helping coordinate at least five different church members who didn't even hesitate to stop and to serve. And to see all of that come together, I didn't have to do anything, to see the body rise up and to help and to serve and show a desire to love and, and make sure real needs are being met without hesitation. My cup of joy was full over what was happening. And that's what Paul's talking about here, that, that he would be able to see the Philippians rising up and serving one another in love and unity because they are a gospel-first people. He goes on here to explain it. How does this happen? The first thing he points out in the unity of the body of Christ uh, being maintained is that they complete his joy by being of the same mind. Notice he mentions that not just once in the first part of the verse, but at the end of the verse, uh, verse 2, he calls them to be of one mind. What's the point here? Well, again, we've already seen. He's, he's really pressing in on the absolute need for the church to have a singular focus. The church must have a singular goal, a singular target in mind that they're all shooting for. And that focus, that goal that he wants for the church is the gospel. Gospel first. And so he's saying, as you relate to one another, be gospel-oriented. What does that mean? Well, it means when we interact with our brothers and sisters, again, maybe there's a disagreement, there's a reason that there could be some upset, we have to stop and ask, is this issue worth disunity? Before we ever start to engage in the conflict. We have to say, Christ died for our unity. Christ died to bring us together in Him. Christ died that we might live. Christ died for me when I was His enemy. Is this issue worth potential division in the church? It might be. There certainly are instances when it is. And the Lord tells us what those times are. But sometimes, more often than we're probably willing to admit... We get into things with one another that we make out to be a lot more important than they really are. And in doing so, we cause little cracks in the relationship. It's like a little stone when a stone flies up off the road and hits your windshield, leaves that little circle. It's very irritating. And that crack, it might be tiny for a little while, but when it's 136,000 degrees outside like it is today... That heat, that pressure gets put on the glass and what start, it, starts to, it starts to crack. It starts to spread out a little bit. And it branches off and it becomes bigger and bigger and it has to be fixed before you can't even see out the windshield anymore and it causes an accident. 
Brothers and sisters, when, when we allow little cracks in our relationship to fester and not deal with them, that's exactly what happens. We need to learn together to overlook offenses. We need to learn to not hold grudges. We need to learn to give each other the benefit of the doubt because if we don't, those little cracks that don't mean a whole lot, they become huge cracks. And if we would have just taken care of them initially, if we would have just overlooked the issue altogether, it wouldn't have been a problem. So we need to be of one mind. We need to focus on living for Christ, living as a gospel-first people. And when that happens, we can prevent unnecessary and damaging conflict because our aim, our goal, our focus is to be unified. And listen, that's not just with someone else in another family in the church. That's in your own family. Husbands and wives, parents and children. This applies to all of us. We need to focus on living for Christ as gospel-first people. That our end, our desire would be the same. And in order for us to get there, that we have to interact with each other in a certain way. How will our interactions with one another affect that focus? That's the question we need to ask. Being gospel-oriented is being others-oriented, which means that we are peace-oriented whenever possible. As I said, there are times when it's not possible. But more times than not, thank God, the issues we're dealing with are not issues on which there should be division. Paul goes on and says his cup of joy will be full when the church is found to have the same love. Is there any question that if we apply the Bible's way of defining love that we will be unified and of one mind? Patient and kind, not envious, not boastful, not arrogant, not rude, not insisting on our own way, not being irritable or resentful, not rejoicing in wrongdoing, but rejoicing in the truth. Bearing all things, believing all things, hoping all things, enduring all things. This is being gospel first people when we focus on loving one another in the church in all of the ways that the Bible exhorts us. It's hard to find disunity when people are striving in the same way, in this kind of love, toward the same end as gospel first people. And that can only happen supernaturally. That can only happen when we've been transformed by Christ. Paul also calls on the Christians to be in full accord. In other words, that they would have agreement with one another. This is important because there's a tendency for some to think that Christian unity is only really possible if and when we, we don't uh, we, we don't focus on all of our differences, if we just ignore our differences, if we just steer clear of disagreements. Sometimes you'll hear people say things like, love unites, doctrine divides. But what Paul is saying here runs completely contrary to that notion, doesn't it? In order for us to be in full accord means that we're going to need to talk about the things of God. We're going to have to have a discussion on what we believe about what God has said in His Word. And that means we're going to have to bring up things that we might disagree about. And when we do that, we have to realize that there will be time that, that we have to put in some thinking and study together. But our goal, our goal in doing that together should be that we might find agreement. Now, it's not always going to happen. 
Some of my best friends in the world are people that I have significant theological disagreements with, even though they are very dear brothers in Christ. But we should try. We should try. The more agreement we have, the greater unity we have. That makes sense, doesn't it? Listen, when things are tough in life, when we face difficult times, when maybe we face actual persecution in this life, the people we want standing on either side of us are going to be be people that we find as much agreement with as we can find. That doesn't mean I can't and I don't and I, I won't have good friends I disagree with, but when it comes to the people I'm going to spend most of my time with and call when things are tough, when, when life is hard, when I need counsel, I want people who I'm, one of, I'm, I'm of one accord with. I want the people who are gospel first people. I want people in my life that, that are getting that and are striving for that. Whenever possible, we should strive to find agreement and delight in that agreement as gospel first people. Well, third, and finally, Paul points out in verses 3 and 4 that we must maintain unity by living for the advantage of others. Now, in these two verses, there's two things that pull this point together. The first thing Paul says in verse 3 is to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Now, of course, that should seem obvious to us. That's an obvious outcome of what Paul writes here for all of us. But if we're honest, we'll admit that we need this reminder, don't we? In fact, we're such masters of self-deception sometimes that we convince ourselves that we're not really being selfishly ambitious or conceited. C.S. Lewis is helpful here. He, he wrote this in his book, Mere Christianity. He said, Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having something more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. And that's exactly right. Jonathan Edwards, really helpful in thinking about selfish ambition. He says, we can tell if we're proud or if we're conceited or selfishly ambitious as people if we're always unhappy because we have this underlying felt need to always succeed. And if we don't do well, or if we don't do something right, or if there's this failure in our life, if we could do something better so we're irritated and restless when we don't quite get there, we're all out of sorts. That, that is selfish ambition. That is pride. That is conceit. But humility is content with circumstances. Humility is content with being imperfect. I'll tell you what, that stings me a little bit because I have a a tendency to measure whether or not my day is going well by how much I was able to accomplish what I set out to accomplish and view everything else that happens in God's providence as inconveniences that get in the way of my goals. But I have to stop and realize that my ideas of success aren't always what the Lord has planned for me. It isn't always the purpose that God had in store for me that day, so I don't need to see those interruptions in my plans as as other people stealing away my time or keeping me from success. I, I need 
to see that such an attitude is only coming from a heart of selfish ambition. If I don't, what happens? I start to resent other people because they got in the way. And if I'm going around resenting anyone that supposedly gets in my way, I can never love them and have unity with them in the way that I'm called to. And so Paul really challenges us here to consider our own hearts. Are we doing anything from selfish ambition or conceit? If so, we cannot maintain unity. The second thing here in verse 4, he says, Be humble and count others as more significant. Look not to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Again, C.S. Lewis, this time his book uh, called The Screwtape Letters. In that book, Screwtape is a senior devil, and he's writing letters to his nephew, Wormwood, who's a junior devil, and he's teaching him how to tempt uh, human beings. And they call uh, the, this, the human his patient. And when you read the letters as a Christian, you always have to remind yourself that this is the devil writing to another devil. So you're sort of having to read it uh, upside down as you would as if this was a Christian uh, talking to another Christian. But there's a section in the book where Screwtape writes this to his nephew. He says, I see your patient has become humble. They don't like that, obviously. Have you drawn his attention to the fact Catch him at the moment when he is really poor in spirit and smuggle into his mind the gratifying reflection, by Jove, I'm being humble. And almost immediately, pride, pride at his own humility will appear. Abjection and self-hatred may even do us good if they keep the man concerned with himself. And above all, if self-contempt can be made the starting point for contempt for, our se- for other selves and thus for gloom, cynicism, and cruelty, let him think of humility not as self-forgetfulness, but as a certain kind of opinion, namely a low opinion of his own talents and character. Now, if you're the devil, that is brilliant advice, isn't it? But think of what Paul is saying here. Paul says, be humble. That's a really difficult thing if you start to think about it, because the first thing you start to think about is, am I being humble? And the second you think, yes, I'm humble. What does Screwtape say here? You're full of pride. But thankfully, Paul doesn't leave it at that. He describes what that means, what that looks like. He says, each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also the interests of others. Look at that. He doesn't say, hate yourself. He doesn't say, don't have any interests. He doesn't say, don't have any goals or don't have any needs that you want met. He doesn't say that. And if you're a person that acts like that and is thinking like that, uh, and you think that's being humble, please stop. It's not humility. It's pride. And everyone sees right through. When someone says, how are you doing today? And your answer is always, oh, I'm just so thankful God didn't kill me in my sleep last night because I'm such a sinful flea bag. I don't deserve anything. I don't don't know why you're even talking to me right now. I don't know. I just, come on, man. All you're doing is calling attention to yourself and trying to prove how humble you are. That's pride. That's Screwtape's point. That is your heart full of pride, trying to get the other person to see how humble you are, how lowly you are, 
how much you realize that you don't deserve God's grace. But see, humility is what you're looking at. That's the reason why what Screwtape is saying is true humility. It's not thinking less of yourself or thinking more of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Does that make sense? It's not noticing yourself because it's not glory-hungry. It's not always being worried about how you are looking. It's not being down on yourself. It's not being up on yourself. It's just not talking and thinking about yourself so much. Did you hear what he said? He said, self-hatred is a wonderful way to get people to be cynical, gloomy, and cruel because if you don't like yourself at all, then you're not going to like other people and you're going to be cruel to them. Jesus picks up on that very same thing, right? Love your neighbor how? As yourself. What is the assumption behind that? We all love ourselves. Jesus doesn't deny that reality. He says, take that reality and apply it to others. Do unto others as you would want done unto you. Why? Because you want good done to you. There's nobody in this world that doesn't want that. And if they say that, it's false humility. It's pride. And so humility is the opposite of self-consciousness and self-awareness. Real humility is self-forgetfulness. Not always stopping to think, am I being really humble right now? Forget about yourself. Think of it this way. If you came in this morning and said, if you said to someone, good morning, how are you? And then they say, oh man, my elbows feel great this morning. First of all, you're going to think, you're kind of a weirdo. But then (laughs) the only reason everybody would ever say something like that is if yesterday their elbows didn't feel so great, right? Because ordinarily, if your elbows are working fine, then they don't really draw attention to themselves. If somebody's saying, man, my knees are bending so well today. When I sit down, they bend. When I stand up, they unbend. It's fantastic. We don't draw that kind of attention to the parts of our body. But if someone's saying that, you figure that something must have gone on where their knees weren't doing what they were supposed to do before. You would never even think about that unless something was wrong. You don't think of your knees unless your knees don't work. You don't think of your elbows unless your elbows don't work. When you're sick and one of your nostrils is plugged up, all of a sudden you have this sting of guilt because you've always taken for granted that you can breathe out of both nostrils. You just have to appreciate things in the right way. If you were healthy, you would never think about how you're doing, how you're looking, what people are saying about you. You wouldn't even think about it. You wouldn't be looking at yourself in your own interests. You would be looking at other things, looking at God, looking at your neighbor, looking at the needs of everyone else. But when you're always thinking about yourself, when you're always thinking about what others think of you, you're drawing real specific attention to something or someone, namely yourself. And Paul's response to that is, hey, listen, you need to get over yourself. You need to live to the advantage of the other person and not yourself. You need to die to yourself and live for their benefit, not your own. Put their needs above your own. 
Put their wants and their desires above your own. Go out of your way to serve someone, even when it's a a disadvantage to you. Go out of your way to love others, even if it is an inconvenience to you. And, And what Paul will show us next week is the number one reason why Christians do that is because of the, that's the exact thing that Christ did for us. That Jesus Christ lived a perfect, sinless life, fulfilling the full law of God that you and I could not fulfill, and then going to the cross and dying, having His body nailed to a cross and shedding His blood in our place. That by faith, putting our faith in Him, trusting in His work of law-fulfilling and dying on our behalf, that we might receive the gift of His righteousness, that we would be counted righteous, have a right standing before God the Father, because Christ purchased it for us. And so we experience the great exchange. My sins are given to Christ on the cross in exchange for His righteousness that I might live and have a right standing before the Father. That's the gospel. And if you're here this morning and you don't believe that to be true, or you haven't put your faith and your trust in Christ as the only hope and the only way of salvation, I commend Him to you this morning. That as you come to Christ, you begin to learn and understand that this life and this world is not all about you. And that's one of the greatest things you can ever experience because only when we forget about ourselves do we start to understand and experience true freedom and true hope and true assurance. Because I'm living not for myself, but for the good of others. And we begin to understand the great blessing that comes with that. As Jesus said, it is far more blessed to give than to receive. To give of ourselves, to give of our very lives, that others might have all of their needs met. And imagine, imagine what unity looks like when we put all of this to work. Imagine if we remember the gospel and find our comfort in the love of Christ, participating together in the Spirit, finding our affection and sympathy in Christ, being together of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility counting others as more significant than ourselves. Imagine what the church looks like when the whole body of Christ commits to this. Here's the way to think about it. And, and this, is, this is every relationship you have, but most especially in the church. How can I outdo this other person in love and service? That's what we should ask ourselves. How can I die to myself for their benefit, for their good? That's the question of love. That's true humility. And until we do that... We can only and will only do what comes most natural to us, which is to live for ourselves. Brothers and sisters, let us maintain the unity of the body of Christ by remembering the work of Christ, by being gospel-first people, and by living each and every day for the advantage of others. That's the work of God. It's a beautiful, supernatural work of God that will fill our hearts with gospel joy as we strive together toward that great end that we might walk together into Christ's kingdom as his people. Let's pray together.
Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for the encouragement and challenge of your word. And we thank you that from your word, we are reminded yet again of what your call is on the lives of your people. And Lord, we recognize as we hear these things that all of us fall short of what you've called us to. And yet, Christ, you you have given us all that we need in order that we may continue to strive to live faithfully. We have the Spirit dwelling within us. We have your Word. And as your Word and Spirit work together, we know that we can be obedient to the Scriptures. And so we pray that by faith, you would work in all of our hearts that we might walk in more faithful obedience unto you. We pray all these things knowing that your great desire is that our goal, our aim, as we seek to have communion with you, is that you would be glorified in our lives and in our church. And so we pray, O God, that we would strive for that with unity, with peace, that we might know a full experience of gospel-centered joy. Would you do all of this, O God, in our midst, in our hearts, for your glory, for the sake of your name, and your renown to all the nations. We ask you would in Jesus' name. Amen.